You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So we're talking initially about the people using the Maze ransomware, which we call Gold Village. Um, it then sort of pivoted on through to other groups like the people using Doppelpaymer and Revil and Nempty, etc. All various different smaller, you would say, ransomware families. That's Alex Tilly. He's a senior security researcher at SecureWorks. The research we're discussing today is titled Ransomware Name and Shame Game. They sort of saw an opportunity, we believe, to say, well, listen, yes, we've we've got your your business, we've got you either in fully encrypted or half encrypted, but also here's your data that we have. And if you don't pay the money now, we're going to either leak the data or we're going to tell regulators, et cetera. So it sort of added a bit of extra pressure to the victims to pay up. And what can you tell us about the maze ransomware itself? Um, it's, it's relatively new, sort of c- coming around uh, um, late last year, in around December last year. It's really it's it seems to spread via uh, either via email or there's some sort of exploitation as well going on. Um, apart from that side of things, technically it's a pretty straightforward ransomware. It, you know, it does what it does. It uses maths to as a weapon basically. <laughs> um, hmm. But the way that they're saying, listen, you know, we're going to name and shame you and and dump your data if you don't pay up. That's sort of much more of a, a personal attack on the victims. 
Well, before we dig into some of those uh, techniques, let's uh, let's explore some of the technical things that are going on behind the scenes here. Um, do you have any sense for how people are finding themselves infected? Yeah, it does appear to be uh, email, uh, like phishing-based, but also via some sort of web exploitation sometimes, um, either via exploit kits or you know various other uh, web-based attacks that way. So it's more of some sort of browser and email-based attack. And what's going on in terms of their command and control servers and their uh, their infrastructure behind the scenes? A lot of it is sort of hosted out of uh, some of it was via Cloudflare. Some of it's uh, out of out of Russia. There's a lot of a lot of the name and shaming bits are done out of Onion sites, so through Tor that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And um, what is your sense for who's running these operations? Um, well, they definitely speak fluent Russian. And they hang out on some Russian forums, Russian language forums. So they either speak very, very good Russian for a Westerner, or they are Eastern European or Russian. Well, let's go through. There's several that you're you're tracking here. You've got Gold Village, Gold Heron, Gold Southfield, and Gold Mansard. Um, and these are using different types of ransomware. Yeah, those they're using different families of ransomware and different attack styles. Like Gold Southfield is one of the ones that people would be most familiar with. That's the Revil group or the group that uses Revil. They seem to use uh, RDP to access boxes, and it's it's always kind of amazing to me that we're what we're in May 2020, and there's still open RDP on the internet with single factor, and these these attacks still work pretty easily. I mean, if if we think back, what three four years now to the Xdetic link uh, leak, where you know that that forum that had a bunch of RDP boxes listed that you could uh, buy access to, that leaked, and those are still useful. Those are still being used these days. People haven't changed passwords in three or four years, um, haven't put a firewall in front of their RDP or some sort of second factor in front of their RDP. So a lot of these groups just sail straight in. And once they get in, they find, you know, it's not the victim shame at all, but relatively flat networks, no real segmentation, not a lot of controls internally. So they're able to sort of go nuts. Um, Obviously, Mm. that's at victims that we see fully victimized, you know what I mean, like fully encrypted right to the end, we can't really say how many they get in and have a look at and say, oh, well, we, we can't fully victimize this network and then just leave. Definitely when they get in, there's pretty standard um, lack of security controls, um, which is in 2020, it's, it's a bit of a shame really. And then the other ones, uh, one of them's using Doppelpamer and one of them's using Nemty. Yeah, these families sort of all spring up and, and they all have, have have their own approaches. A lot of times they do use RDP. A lot of times they'll use spear phishing. These old types of, of sources of attacks still work these days. And, you know, I, I sort of always say that criminals don't stop doing something unless it, you know, stops working. So as they keep using these methods of ingress, it means that they're still working, right? And they're still getting enough victims and enough successful in, infections to keep keep it going for them, to keep it lucrative. And, and who do they seem to be focused on, both uh, geographically, but then also in terms of uh, the types of businesses they're after? Yeah, really, it's so it, it, it's an interesting one. So these groups that we're talking about here are really a mixed bag. Most of their targeting does seem to be in, in North in North America. That could just be because that's most of the targeting that we're seeing, if you if you know what I mean. Um, but it does mm-hmm. seem to be mostly in North America. The verticals they're targeting are across the board. Now that's the particularly bad part of it because with things like Ryuk and some some of the earlier um, you know large-scale ransomware attacks we could see that they would surgically pick their targets based on who would do the most damage and who would be, be the most likely to pay up 
these guys seem to be just sort of going for whoever they can get into, mostly sort of medium to large businesses, but it's really, there's no one vertical that's being victimized more than another. It's, it's pretty much open season. And what are you able to see? What, what sort of insights do you have in terms of their success? Well, so that's very interesting, right? So people sort of throw around numbers like 10% or 15% of businesses pay up, that sort of thing. Obviously, our, our advice is don't pay up. It's, it's, it's not worth paying up. But the ex-law enforcement person in me sort of says, well, if they weren't being successful, they wouldn't still be doing it. And the fact that they're doing it more and more does speak to a certain level of growing success, if you know what I mean, from a criminal mm-hmm. point of view. Um, so I guess all, all, we, all we can really say is that if ransomware wasn't working, you wouldn't still see ransomware. But we do see a lot more ransomware, which speaks to itself, really. Do you have any sense from the, the the data that they're posting? You know, a big part of this is the threat to post the data that, they, that they're able to exfiltrate. Um, do you have any sense for how many victims they've been able to hit? Yeah, so sort of if we pick the, the maze group, it looks like around the sort of 95 to 100 sort of level of uh, businesses that they've, that they've posted so far, which we would see as, as relatively significant. Um, across, you know, across all verticals across the world. If you think about it from a criminal point of view, that's a decent success rate if you get 10, 15% of those to actually pay up. The other groups, you know, it's it's smaller numbers, you know, 30, 40, 50 sort of thing. So probably a few hundred to a thousand worldwide, maybe. Um, probably a few, more likely to be a few hundred. And, and um, they seem to be, um, I don't want to say this, um, you know, it's a common thing when uh, we see Russian-speaking organizations. It seems as though they will avoid uh, hitting their fellow countrymen. It, it'll be uh, very noticeable that they're uh, that they don't seem to be hitting that part of the world. Is that something that seem that you're tracking with this group? We haven't seen any hitting of Russian targets or um, many Eastern European targets, for that matter. It's it is skewed towards um, the continental United States, but again, that that could just be what we're seeing and and what they're publishing. They might hit some Eastern European or, or, or Russian targets, but just not publicize it. Who, who knows? But yeah, we're not seeing any of that. It's It does seem to be definitely that point of view of you don't, you know, if you're inside Russia, the last thing you do is hack Russia, right? Right, right. And in terms of, of staying up and running, these organizations are using bulletproof servers. Is, is that pretty much the name of the game? Yeah, bulletproof servers or semi-bulletproof servers in in, um, in the case of, of some of the earlier um, stuff we saw, they were one of their victims launched a legal process against their hoster in Ireland and got their data taken down. Um, So then they sort of named and shamed them a bit more brutally via Cloudflare in the States. Um, Yes, that was was, um, the Maze group with Southwire. So that was an interesting sort of reaction. And And I suppose we see that a bit across different verticals where victims sort of first approaches to launch due process, which is not a bad thing. It's just oftentimes that can antagonize the criminals, as we saw here. And, and the criminals are, are following through on their threats to start publishing the data, yes? Definitely. So this, so that's, that's a really good point, and I think that's really sort of does, does bear um, understanding that in, in a really weird way, ransomware is based on trust, as in you're going to trust your attacker that he'll either give you the keys or, you know, in, in, in some way give you the means to decrypt yourself if you pay up. And it's the same thing with, with this stuff. You you have to trust your attacker that if you pay up, he's not going to dump all of the data he has or, or more of the data he has or any of the data he has. Because the second that you break that trust model, 
which is in inverted commas because it's, it's obviously it's very, it's a, it's a perverted trust model. <laughs> but right. the second that you as the attacker break that trust model, that word's going to get out, right? And everyone's going to know, well, if you get an email from the Maze team or the Revil team saying, we've got you pay up or we'll dump your data, if, if the word gets out that they'll dump your data anyway, no one's going to pay. You know what I mean? Because that, that trust yeah. is completely broken. It's, it's a really perverted trust model that sort of says that we will do what you what we, what we say we'll do if you pay us. It's a really strange place to be, I think, as, as, as a victor in one of these things. Because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're not getting asked for like, like $6 million, if you're getting asked for $10,000, let's, let's say, for instance, to actually say, no, we're just going to rebuild, that could cost you significantly more than $10,000 to rebuild. But the reverse is also true. If you're a large, if you're a large enterprise and you pay up, you know, let's let's say three hundred thousand dollars, and you pay up and you get a tarball with twenty thousand individual keys in it, right? Now you've got mm. a data management problem. How are you going to deploy those keys to workstations and servers in an acceptable time frame? And which ones do you start with? So even if you do pay up and you get the data back, it's not saying that you're going to be back online in twenty minutes. You've got a significant issue here of deploying these keys and getting these these workstations and servers decrypted and back online. A lot of people don't consider that. They sort of think, okay, well, if I pay up, that's the magic, you know, the magic um, key, and all of a sudden I'm good to go. Well, not really. If you pay up a lot of times, you're just starting your journey, <laughs> and this 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 right. recovery journey can be arduous. And I think what you can find is a lot of places. You know, obviously, I sort of. I operate a bit, bit on a don't ask, don't tell sort of policy, if, if, if you will, around these things. It's like, if you've got keys, that's great. You've got keys. I'm not going to ask how you got them. That's, that's, that's your, your business's business, as it were. But I see. Yeah, but having, like, just having the keys is the beginning of your journey. And then all of a sudden, you have competing interests. You know, like, if, you, if you're a decent-sized enterprise and you sit down and say, okay, we've got the means to decrypt these, this stuff, where do we start? Can you imagine the, the fight that could break out? <laughs> because mm-hmm. everyone's systems and everyone's data is the most important in the business, right? Of course it is. Of course. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so that's, so that, that's sort of – I've been sort of pushing this barrow around around my, my, my little patch here in Australia for, for a little while now. It's about people are, are having their BCP meetings and their DR meetings and they are now discussing ransomware. That's great. That, that's an awesome step. You know, three years ago or two years ago, it wasn't really brought up in those sort of in, in those sort of meetings. You know, now it's okay. Well, if it gets if we get ransomware, what's our corporate policy? What's our marketing strategy? You know, these these things that that sort of come into play. But the, the extra question is, okay, before the bad thing happens, discuss and agree on what we will decrypt first. Should we come into possession of keys? You know, let's let's just say a, a magic fairy drops some keys in our in our lap. Mm-hmm. Where, where do we start? And I think having that nailed down and discussed up front will put you in a good position. It'll, it'll also help you sort of figure out what's the most important to your business because fair enough, we talk about it from a ransomware point of view, but you can talk about it from sort of any sort of nasty attack, any sort of crippling attack point of view as well. It's like, okay, well, what actually is key to our business? And it might be different than your normal BCP planning where it's about a power outage or you know some sort of event in, in your server farm. It might have a different thought process around what's most important when it comes to, it'll come back, but it'll just take six hours to decrypt, you know, and then you sort of have those discussions. Yeah, it is interesting, I find, that um, how often, I, I suppose, it's easy for people to overlook the time factor that, you know, even when when we were in the mode of, of advocating for having good, robust backups, that those backups aren't going to just restore themselves instantaneously. That takes time. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, in all honesty, that could be sort of a, a bit of a failing on us as security professionals, because mm. maybe we don't think about that. We just think about backups, check, do the backups work? Yes, good, tick box, next problem. We don't think about the poor server admin who's got backups, yes, but he's got 400 servers to restore and everyone's screaming at him. You know, we right. don't, maybe we, we haven't considered the personal aspect to this. And that's the part of it that I find the most interesting is the, is the human aspect of, of what we do as either criminals or defenders. It's, yeah, the, the, those, those situations where it's, yes, you've got keys or you've got backups, but that's going to take time and have we budgeted for that? And that's where it does come down to a, a realistic discussion around what's it going to, you know, it could take us three or four weeks to get everything back online. What's that going to cost us as a business? even if we've paid the X hundred thousand dollars, X million dollar ransom, or it'll take us this long to rebuild from scratch and we'll lose, you know, a week's worth of data. Maybe there's a discussion to have there because I think, yeah, we we maybe have just been discussing it, as, as you say, from a more of a technical point of view of, yes, we have backups, that's all fine. Um, there's, I think there's there's deeper chats to be had there. What sort of uh, advice do you have for organizations to protect themselves against this? Well, block RDP would be a good starting point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think, honestly, if 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 you can, yeah, if if you can block RDP or put it behind some sort of you know second factor or some sort of authentication gateway, you'll be ahead of a lot of people because while some of this stuff is definitely targeted and it's they 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 pick their targets based on who is the most likely to pay up because they have either regulatory authorities on their back or they have you know maybe critical to life functions, that sort of stuff. Some of this stuff does seem to be more opportunistic, which will which will be more around the, well, let's just see what we can get access to and then see if it's worth our time to encrypt them all. So by not being on that list, either don't show up in the Shodan search or, you know, don't be in a, in a, um, in a database dump or, you know, change your passwords, that sort of thing, you will see a lot of these people just move on to someone else. A determined attacker is still going to be able to, you know, like there's there's a, a lot of ways to skin a cat, right? So if someone mm. really wants into your network, they're probably going to get in eventually. But in, in a lot of these cases here, it's, it's just a case of they just want to get access to anything, to anyone who, who might pay up. So just make it a little bit harder for them. Obviously, proper email, um, sanitization, that sort of stuff works really well. You know, detonate all your um, in incoming documents in some sort of sandbox to see if, if, if they go off, if they're doing anything strange. Standard security provisioning around, you know, don't run as admin, app whitelisting, et cetera. Again, things that are very easy well, easy for us as security professionals to say, but trying to deploy app whitelisting on a large enterprise is, as we all know, quite a, a, a beast in and of itself. But mm -hmm. if you can move towards that, you're doing pretty well, I think. But yeah, a lot of times, it, honestly, it is just literally put something in front of your RDP or block your RDP and then use two-factor on your on your OWA. Honestly, it's, it's really simple things to make you not be at the top of that infection curve, as it were, um, and make them move on to someone else. Do you think there's any advantage to uh, encrypting all of your data at rest so that you know, if, if these folks get their hands on your data, it's encrypted. If they publish it, there's really nothing to be gained from it. Yeah, I mean... See that that's that's a very good question, and it's it's a little bit hard to sort of say uh, categorically because, yeah, if you encrypt all your data and they and they get it, yep, yeah, hundred percent, it's going to be just maths, just 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 going to be entropy. That's all they're going to look at. But right. a determined attacker who's got enough access to your systems to get that data, you could say that have access to the to the means to decrypt it at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm. So, 
if you're on a system as you know admin or as system privileges, and 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 that has some in, involvement in the encryption or decryption of that of those data at rest, you're going to be able to decrypt it anyway. Um, so yeah, it will definitely put a, a a hurdle in in place. But I think again, if it's a sufficiently determined attacker, we'll be, be able to sort of subvert that anyway. Um, we see that a lot with things like with with the BEC stuff, where you know these emails are arriving at suppliers or vendors that are that you know. SPF and DKIM ticked and they've got digital signatures tick and the invoice looks exactly the way it should, et cetera, because they're literally in that person's system generating all this all this information and the emails through their mail client. So all these little right. technical ticks that we put in place to say, yes, this is legitimate, it'll tick on all those boxes because it is literally legitimate. It's just not that person using that laptop to do it. It's someone else. <laughs> um, right, which, right. Yeah. It's like that old horror movie where the, the they call and they say, you know, the the call is coming from inside the house. It's literally what it is, and it's 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 why it's so insidious. Because you know, I, again, we've sort of said, listen, if the little padlock is is there and and the and the address bar is green, yeah, that's fine. Or if it's got the the tick here or whatever, it's passed some sort of technical check to say that yes, this is a legit document or a secure site or whatever. You you know, these sort of positive security affirmations, as it were. We've said if you see these or if these things happen, then it's all good. The problem then becomes is when the bad guy can subvert that trust and use it against us to say, well, yeah, everything's good about this email except it wasn't that person sending it. That's our, Again, mm-hmm. our trust model is completely broken down because we trust all these technical indications that things are all fine. <laughs> um, so that's right. what makes a lot of this stuff insidious. Um, it's, it's, it's a hard one because we sort of, we've, we've taught people that, yeah, if, if, if all these things say, yes, it's all good, then trust it. But maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting insight. It's hard, right? Um, yeah, it is. Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And, and I think that's a big part of why um, you can't sort of shame the victims here. No, 100%. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're doing their best. Yeah, and 100%. And, and that's sort of, if, even if I'm not professionally involved, if, if I'm just, you know, if, if I have a friend in a business who's doing this sort of, who's getting victimized, say, by a ransomware at, at various levels, my advice to, to, to my friends is always, if you do pay up, that, that's cool. That, that, that's on you. You know, like I would advise not doing it, but, you know, your business is your business. Don't tell anyone. You know what I mean? Like hmm. you just, you, you you came across some keys or you managed to, you know, find a, a some sort of way to decrypt it. Whatever your story needs to be, but your business is your business. Um, and you haven't got to tell, tell the world because, yeah, people do like to victim shame, but I think it's it's maybe a situation similar to what we used to see again with BEC, where with business email compromise, where people didn't want to say that they were victimized. They they didn't want to say that they'd lost, you know, four hundred thousand dollars to 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 some scammer, because they were embarrassed or it might hurt trust in their business or whatever like that. But now, right. you know, I, I stand up in front of groups of people and say, well, who here's had had had, had an issue, and hands go up across the across the board. Everyone's going, yep. Yeah, we lost twenty grand. Yeah, we lost eighty grand, or we almost lost four hundred thousand dollars. You know, everyone's had an experience with this now, so that sort of shame element has gone out of it. Because, yeah, we used to think, or some people used to think, you know, oh, it's you'd have to be a real fool to to, to fall for one of these scams, and that is no way the case at all. You know, the, the, these attackers, be they ransomware or BC or whatever, they've been doing this just as long or longer than we have as defenders. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we have right. to sort of respect the adversary in a way. And, and yeah, victim shaming is not going to help anyone. It's the worst thing we can probably do. Our thanks to Alex Tilly from SecureWorks for joining us. The research is titled Ransomware Name and Shame Game. We'll have a link in the show notes. 
And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.